Good morning. It's good to be with you today, uh, as always. And um, man, I got to tell you that last song that Fred played was beautiful. Standing at the front, if you've never done this, you're missing out. But sitting at the front, uh, getting to hear your voices singing, "All I Have Is Christ," is beautiful. Uh, and so. We're here today because all we have is Christ and that's all we need. And so I want to go to His Word this morning. We're back in our series in Luke. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we looked at the Beatitudes, what we often call the Beatitudes. Jesus had just gathered His twelve apostles. And as He gathers His apostles along with this crowd that had uh, sort of gotten together, we see Luke giving His account of this Sermon on the Plain. And one of the first things that Jesus begins to teach is He begins to divide the world into two groups. In the form of four blessings and four woes, Jesus effectively divides the entire human race into two groups. Those two groups were, number one, those who suffer for His sake and have His blessing on one hand. And on the other, you have people who live for themselves and will come to an unhappy end to judgment. And so... Last week we looked at that and sort of asked the question, all right, what group do I fall in? Am I really following Christ? Am I denying myself? And this week what we're looking at is we're looking at Jesus continuing to teach what it's going to look like to be a part of His kingdom. What kingdom life is going to look like for us. Specifically today we're going to look at what it means to love our enemies and how we're supposed to respond to the sins of other people. So we're going to be in chapter 6, verses 27 through 42. So if you have God's Word there in front of you, uh, let's read along together. Chapter 6, verses 27 through 42. Jesus says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners... Those who love, for even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, 
Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is God's Word. Let's go to Him and ask His help in understanding and applying it this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word, that it's eternal, that it's unchangeable, and Father, that it confronts us in our sin. Father, we ask this morning that as we read these words that are difficult, they're contrary to our nature, Father, that Your Word would thunder in our hearts, Lord, and that we would not, we would not try and soften anything that You've not intended to be softened. Father, we would take Your commands, we'd take them to heart, and that we would, by Your Spirit, walk in the way You've commanded. Father, would You help us in this endeavor, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, May 10th, 1940, the world was changed forever. It was because the first episode of Tom and Jerry aired. This is the greatest cartoon ever created. All right, uh, and I'm not talking about the new stuff. Right, the old Tom and Jerry is classic. Right, like you're never too old for Tom and Jerry. Um, you know, I remember growing up watching that at home, watching my grandmother's house. It was a cartoon that you could always enjoy. And um, I think that one of the things that was so entertaining about Tom and Jerry, aside from the fact that it gave you lots of ideas for how to retaliate against your siblings. Um, Tom and Jerry did what good comedy does, right? It it takes something that's common to human experience and it exaggerates it and it makes it funny, but it still rings true, right? It speaks to a common human experience. And with Tom and Jerry, right, you know the relationship between the cat and the mouse. It's one where, you know, in every episode, right, there's going to be an offense committed by one or the other. And each offense is going to lead to a retaliation in equal measure, right? And it just continues to escalate, right? So by the end of the movie, someone's lit on fire, has their tail plugged into an electrical outlet, right? Like something crazy is happening. Um, that was Tom and Jerry, right? And if we're being honest, that's what a lot of our human relationships look like as well. The reason why we find it funny, the reason why I find it enjoyable is because we know that's how human conflict tends to escalate for us. We, we know what it's like to have enemies. We know what it's like to have opposition, to have people that don't like us or mistreat us or seek to take advantage of us. And when that happens, we tend to fall into two sort of methods of responding to that, right? Either number one, we take the Tom and Jerry approach, right? An eye for an eye. You, you wronged me, so I'm going to seek to hurt you in equal measure. Make sure that you feel the pain you've inflicted on me. And on the other hand, we're not living in an episode of Tom and Jerry, we realize that it is illegal to smack your enemy in the face with a frying pan, right? Or to launch them into outer space on the back of a rocket. So we do the opposite, right? Instead of trying to retaliate, we actually begin to live sort of an insulated life, right? Seeking to put as much distance as possible between us and anyone who would take advantage of us, anyone who would hurt us. We want to put as much distance as possible. And we kind of live these withdrawn, insulated, self-protecting lives. And what I want you to see is that when Jesus gives commands on how we're supposed to love our enemies, what He commands His disciples to do is something so contrary to our nature. He calls us to love our enemies. 
Instead of telling us just sort of do whatever feels right, you know, an eye for an eye, or just protect yourself at all costs, Jesus calls us to become a compelling community by loving those who have done nothing to deserve it and by being more aware of our own sins than the sins of other people. And so we're going to look at three points today. First, oh, huh, point number two disappeared. It's a mystery point. We're going to make y'all guess. Uh, sorry, I don't know why I didn't sink earlier. But anyway, point number two, just for those of you that need the plan going in, all right? Uh, number one is we're going to talk about how to love lavishly. Number two, we're going to talk about looking to God uh, for our motivation. And then number three is be aware of your own sin, all right? So let's look at that first point, loving lavishly. I'm going to re, uh, reread the teaching of Jesus on this again, just a few verses. He says, but I say to you in verse 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Alright, so Jesus' command, love your enemies. Number one, I want to sort of establish the principle, right? If we're talking about loving lavishly, we need to sort of establish what kind of love is Jesus really calling us to here, right? Because He doesn't beat around the bush. And in typical fashion, right, Jesus gets probably a little bit too practical for most of our comfort levels, right? Jesus gets very specific about what it looks like to love our enemies, right? To love those who have done nothing to deserve it. So what kind of love is He calling us to? Is He calling us to hide behind sort of a fake churchy smile? Just act like everything's okay. Is that the love He's talking about? Is He calling us to just be indifferent to our enemies? Not really wish anything good or bad, but just sort of an indifference. Is He calling us, is He calling us to retaliation or to insulation? No. Right? What He's actually calling us to is something far more radical. He's calling us to agape love. Philip Ryken, uh, guy that wrote a commentary on Luke, defined agape love as this. He said, agape love is different from all the other loves. Unlike the other ones that Jesus could have chose from, He could have used storge love, but the love that Jesus calls us to is unnatural, right? It's contrary to our nature. It comes only by the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit. Unlike eros love, agape is not romantic. It's not the kind of love that anyone falls into. Rather, it's the kind of love that disciples choose as a part of their obedience to Christ. And unlike phileo love, agape is not for friends only. It is for our enemies as well. Jesus called His disciples to show a deliberate affection that was not based on what people deserved, but on the grace of God. So I want you to catch that. He said it's not the kind of love that you fall into, it's the kind you choose as an act of obedience to God. When Jesus says, love your enemies... Jesus is calling us to a deliberate, sacrificial, intentional love for our enemies. So who are our enemies? Jesus gives us a list. Alright, let's look down at these briefly. If we can put them in two categories, though, these enemies sort of fall into one of two camps, right? Either they're people who attack us as a person, right? Someone who hates us, abuses us, whatever, right? That's someone who attacks us personally. 
Then there are also enemies that threaten our possessions, right? That are a threat to our stuff. And Jesus doesn't offer us a vague answer about how it looks to love these people. He gets very specific, very practical. And so, who are these enemies? Verse 27, He says it's those who hate you. How do you respond to people who hate you? Jesus says, do good to them. When you're met with hatred, you seek to outdo them with good. Verse 28, Jesus says, it's those who curse you. How do we respond? We bless them. Where their mouths may spew venom, our words need to impart life that sound like Jesus and point people to Him. Verse 28 also, those who abuse you. This doesn't refer to physical abuse. We'll talk about that in the next point. This refers specifically to verbal abuse. Those who, we might say, slander us, talk negatively about us. How do we respond? We pray for those who slander us. No matter what they may say about us to anyone else, we pray for them. Verse 29, to the one who strikes you, that's an enemy also. Now, this verse right here, to me, like I've always heard this one interpreted growing up to say that we're supposed to sort of put up with the school bully Right, that uh, when it comes to bullies or domestic violence, right, we're just supposed to turn the other cheek, look the other way, and endure it because that's what God would have us do. Now, there's a couple of reasons I think this is a faulty interpretation, but John MacArthur, of course, says a lot better than I can. He says this the turn the other cheek rule cannot be meant to keep civil government from punishing evildoers. To apply these principles in the civil arena would be to surrender society to chaos. Civil government is ordained by God precisely for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. He gets that from 1 Peter 2, 13-14 and Romans 13, 4. He goes on, he says, Justice obligates us both to uphold the law and to insist that others do so as well. Reporting crime is both a civic responsibility and an act of compassion. To excuse or to help cover up the wrongdoing of others is an act of wicked complicity with evil. To fail to protect the innocent is in and of itself a serious evil. So John MacArthur says, don't, don't interpret this as saying that when, that when someone strikes us, when someone actually abuses us, when there's abuse going on and we're made aware of it, that we're supposed to turn the other cheek, to ignore it, to sweep it under the rug. We have a responsibility to uphold the law, to report those things, to let the government punish evildoers. But notice that his advice to report abusers is not in spite of Jesus' command to love, it's because of it. See, whenever we report abuse, we are actually showing compassion to the victim and to the abuser. And our hope in that is that even through reporting something like that, that God would use that to draw the abuser to Himself and to save them. We have a responsibility to protect the innocent. This is not a command to undermine that. Jesus is not condoning in any way a culture that hides abuse, that shames victims, that sweeps suffering under the rug. So, what is He talking about? If it's not that then what is Jesus describing here? In His day, to strike someone would have referred to a backhanded slap in public. 
the goal was not pain, it was embarrassment. Right? The, the goal was to embarrass someone by slapping them, not just to inflict pain. And so you could almost interpret this as saying, when someone seeks to embarrass you, when someone seeks to humiliate you, turn the other cheek. It's not talking about physical abuse, it's talking about humiliation, embarrassment. Now, taking the command that way, how are we supposed to respond to someone who seeks to embarrass us, to humiliate us? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Don't respond with retaliation. It's not an eye for an eye, but if they humiliate you, if they embarrass you, if they insult you, that's fine. Let them do it again. Verse 29, Jesus moves from those who attack us personally, those who are a threat to our stuff, he says, the one who takes from you or the one who steals from you. How does Jesus say we're supposed to respond to these people? He says, offer them even more than they took. That was an example that came to mind as I was looking over this. I don't know if you've ever seen the play Les Mis, but I've, I have become more of a musical guy over the past couple of years. I love musicals. And... Uh, I love the latest rendition of Les Mis. It was a cinematic masterpiece, right, with Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway and Russell Crowe. It's a beautiful movie. And there's a scene in this play that's kind of the turning point of the whole movie, right? You remember Jean Valjean is a, a criminal. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. And he takes up for a night at the home of a priest. And in the middle of the night, he gets up while the priest is asleep and he goes and takes the silverware out of the sanctuary, right? And puts it in a bag and hits the road. And the priest wakes up, obviously, and finds the silverware is missing. And then that next day, the police bring Jean Valjean back with the sack full of this silverware. And they ask the priest, they say, he says you gave this stuff to him. And as you can imagine, right, you're watching this guy. He knows he's about to get outed as a criminal. He's going to be returned back to captivity. But then in this moment of shock, right, the, the priest says, of course I gave them to him. And the guards are kind of confused, right? The police officer, you, you gave him the silverware? And he said, of course I did. He said, but I'm so glad you brought him back because he forgot the lamp stand, the, the, the candle stands. And, and the cops are so confused, but he says, he said, how could you forget the candlestick holders? They're worth twice as much as what you took. And so the police leave, and the priest is standing there with him, and Jean Valjean asks the obvious question, why did you do that? And he said, because today I have rescued you from fear and from hatred. I have ransomed your soul today. And you know if you've watched the rest of that play or the rest of that movie, you know that that act of grace, that unmerited kindness, was the turning point in his life. See, when someone takes from us, we have an opportunity to show a love that is so otherworldly, so contrary to our nature and to our culture, that it paints an incredible picture of the gospel. But it's not just the ones who takes from you. It says those who beg from you. How are we supposed to treat those who beg from us? Jesus says, give to everyone who begs from you. He doesn't soften this. There's no qualifiers here. Jesus says, give to everyone who begs from you. Now, I don't know. I mean, I think that we're supposed to take this pretty literally, right? I mean, those who beg from us, we need to give. We need to err on the side of generosity. Um, John Piper, you know, 
pretty well-known pastor, lives in Minneapolis. And he said that he got in a habit of carrying about $21 bills. So he would always have something to give to the poor. And that was just something that he made it his mission to do. I'm going to carry 20 bucks a week and I'm going to give to anyone who asks. So maybe it's pretty literal, right? We need to give money to those who ask. But there are times when we're unable to give. And I think there are also times when it may be unwise to just hand out money. So there are times when this doesn't need to be just money. Um, there's also a friend of mine in South Dakota, a pastor up there. And he and his children put goodie bags together and keep them in the car, right? And this is going to have like travel shampoo and toothbrush and toothpaste and deodorant, um, maybe some snacks, right? And they keep these goodie bags in the car. And when they're driving through Rapid City, if someone comes up to the window and asks for something... If he has time, he's going to stop and have a conversation with him about the gospel. He's also going to give him a goodie bag. It's not just hand out money, but he's giving him something, right? There ought to be generosity that marks the Christian life. A desire to give to anyone who asks. And even when we have nothing material to give, simply giving someone the time of day and having a conversation with them may be the greatest thing we can give them, is to tell them about the gospel. And then verse 34, the last person that Jesus brings up, he says, those who will not repay what they've borrowed. And how does he say to Hanley? He says, lend, he says, uh, he says, give not expecting anything in return. We're to lend money and possessions generously with no expectation of ever getting those things back. Now, when you sort of synthesize all these examples, right, when you bring them together, Jesus tells us very clearly how we're to practice agape love. We do good to our enemies, we speak kindly to them, and we pray for them. When we're examining our Christ-likeness towards our enemies, there are three questions we need to ask. Am I seeking to do good to this person? When I'm met with hostility, with opposition, with anger, with slandering, whatever it may be, am I seeking to outdo them with good? Going above and beyond even the bare minimum that's expected. Secondly, am I speaking kindly to this person? And not sort of like a sarcastic, you know, backhanded compliment. It's like, am I speaking kindly to these people, to my enemies? And then thirdly, am I praying for this person? These are the three ways that we love our enemies. We outdo them in good, we speak kindly to them, and then we pray for them. And we say we pray for them. I don't know if you remember the old country song a couple of years ago. There was a guy saying, you know, I'll pray for you. And he was talking about his ex-wife. He's like, you know, I'll pray a flower pot falls out of a window sill and hits you on the head. You know, we're not talking about that kind of prayer. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. We're to actually pray from the heart good things for our enemies. And I think this has as much to do with us as it does our enemies. Right? Because when we actually pray for our enemies, it softens our hearts, doesn't it? If you ever bring yourself to pray for someone who's wronged you, it begins to conform your heart to Jesus's in a very profound and unique way. So we pray for our enemies. And then he summarizes all this with the golden rule. He says, treat others as you would have them treat you. So again, Jesus gives a command that's easy enough for a child to understand and quote, but it's difficult enough that even the most mature believer among us struggles to keep it. So we lavishly give agape love to everyone, including our enemies, not because they deserve it or because we think they ever will, but because this love by its nature is for those who can't deserve it or earn it. That's the kind of love we're called to give our enemies. And it's a love that's rooted in God's character and grace. And that's what Jesus says next, verses 35 and 36. 
This is our mystery point up here behind me. Verses 35 and 36. He says, But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be the sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So Jesus in these two verses, right, and this is point number two, look to God. Jesus in these two verses gives us a theological underpinning, a foundation for how we are to go about loving our enemies, why we are to love our enemies. And the first thing Jesus says is He gives the example of common grace. To think about common grace for a second, have you ever looked around in the world and noticed that both believers and unbelievers alike can enjoy a good steak? Right, uh, that believers and unbelievers alike can have a satisfying job, an enjoyable marriage. They can have a good vacation, have a nice car, a nice house. Right, There are things that both believers and unbelievers alike can experience that are straight from the goodness of God. Right, That's an aspect of what we would call common grace, grace that God pours out on everyone. Even people who ignore the reality of God's existence, who suppress His truth, His glory, live lives contrary to His holiness, those people can still still experience the grace and goodness of God. Jesus says in verse 36, or excuse me, the end of 35 there, He said, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God overflows in kindness to those who don't deserve it. This is what we call common grace. And so, because God shows love to those who don't deserve it and those who even hate Him and mock Him, we should be able to do the same. The second reason that He gives, at the beginning or in the middle of verse 35 there, He said, and you will be sons of the Most High. The second reason Jesus gives us to love our enemies is that it actually serves as assurance of our salvation. Right, we, we learn nothing about ourselves by our ability to love those who are like us. Or to love those who offer us some tangible benefit. It's easy to give something to someone if you know that favor's coming around at some point. It's really hard to give to people who hate us. It's really hard to love people who offer us nothing in return. And Jesus says... When you show that kind of love, it's proof that you are a child of God. It serves for our assurance. And so that's the why, right? We look to God for our strength and our example. And after telling us how to love our enemies and showing us the why, Jesus then continues to teach us on how to be merciful with other sinners like us. So look with me in verse uh, 37. Verse 37. Jesus says, Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, in this life, right, it's pretty inevitable that because we're all still sinners, we are going to sort of bump into each other and ruffle some feathers. Right, that's just going to happen. If you're new to this church and you're under the you know illusion that there's no conflict that ever happens here, we just all sing kumbaya all the time, stick around, right? We're humans, we're sinners, and there's going to be times 
where we ruffle one another's feathers. And Jesus tells us how we're supposed to address that. And He says, judge not. Now in saying judge not, right, this is a a favorite little phrase, not a verse, but a phrase that our culture loves to sort of rip out of context and misapply, right? Don't judge. Your Scripture says don't judge. So what is the Bible calling us to? I mean, is Jesus calling us to never call sin, sin? Is Jesus calling us to never hold a brother or sister accountable? Is He calling us to not ever have opinions? Is He calling us never to inspect the fruit of professing believers? We know that all the answers to that are no, right? That's not what Jesus is calling us to. So what is Jesus calling us to? And His answer is pretty straightforward. Jesus is calling us away from a critical spirit. Jesus is telling us that we ought to be far more concerned with our own sins than the sins of the people around us. And see, by our nature, we want to overlook our faults. Right? Like that's, that's our natural tendency is we want to ignore what's wrong with us, minimize it, and forget it if possible, and we want to project our strengths so that everyone knows what we're good at. But then when we deal with other people, we do the exact opposite. Right? We, we tend to minimize their strengths and magnify their weaknesses. And Jesus comes in, I mean, that's normal, right? That's human. But Jesus comes in and creates a new normal, a new expectation among His people. So He's calling us away from a critical spirit. John Stott says this, he said, The critical Christian is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people. They enjoy seeking out their failings. They put the worst possible construction on their motives. They pour cold water on their schemes and are ungenerous towards others' mistakes. Now, I hear that, and it's talking about me. (laughs) And it's talking about you. This, this critical Christian, is all of us. This is what's lurking in our hearts, is a desire to critique other people, to be fault finders. And Jesus' command is to come away from a harsh, critical spirit. What would that look like? I just wonder, in a church community, what would it look like if we were to put our critical selves to death and instead embrace this new kingdom ethic? There's a few things I think it would look like. Number one, because we aren't Jesus and we don't know the heart, we would hold our opinions loosely and graciously. Right? Jesus was vocal in His critique towards the Pharisees, but Jesus knew the heart. So He could speak authoritatively, we don't. So we should hold our opinions loosely, right? Be willing to have our opinions changed. We would be quick to assume the best about other people, not the worst. We would be experts in the strengths of our brothers and sisters, not their weaknesses. We would be quick to forgive and extend grace when other people fail us. And we would be more aware of our sins than those of other people. That's what I think it would like to live in that kind of a community. Why? Why do we do that? Jesus gives us a few reasons. I'm going to say just briefly. First, Jesus tells us that God will deal with us in the measure that we deal with other people. If we... If we are harsh with other people, if we refuse to forgive, if we refuse to extend grace, what we are proving is that we actually don't understand the grace of God. 
God assures us that He will deal with us in the measure that we deal with others. And then the next thing that I think is sort of implied here in the text is that we can't stand up under the weight of our own expectations for other people. And this is sort of the ironic thing about being a critical person is that when I'm most critical of other people, I'm not applying that same standard to myself. (laughs) Right? When I'm being very critical, very harsh with other people, I'm not applying that same standard to myself. And then the next thing Jesus says in verse 39, He gives a parable. He says, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but every woman he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus is saying that another reason why we are not to judge, why we are to be gracious with one another, is because we are all still in training. Right? Not a single one of us has risen to the level of teacher. Not a single one of us has completed the course. Not a single one of us is a varsity level Christian that's got a handle on our sins. We are all frail, ignorant pupils under King Jesus, learning from Him and being led by Him. On this side of eternity, we are all fellow learners in Christ. So Jesus cuts straight to our pride and reminds us that none of us have arrived. Next reason, Jesus goes in talking about the the plank in your brother's eye. Verse 41 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Jesus is reminding us that we are the the biggest sinners that we know. Right? Subconsciously, we assume that other people struggle with more sins than we do. Or at least maybe their faults are more glaring than ours are. And Jesus says, no, 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 change your perspective and realize that you are the biggest sinner you know. It's not anybody around you, it's you. And if we all adopted that attitude, we were more concerned with our own sin than other people's, then we would be more gracious with one another, more patient, bearing with one another. And then next... I I think also, sorry, real quick on that point, for the biggest sinners that we know, I love whenever the Apostle Paul says in one of his epistles, he calls himself the chief of sinners. I think that our hearts are beginning to conform to Christ. We're beginning to actually look more like Him when we testify, yeah, I'm the biggest sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. That ought to be the way we view ourselves. I'm the chief of sinners. Not anybody else but me. And then lastly is that we are only able to actually help one another effectively when we are dealing with our sins. Look at the end of verse 42. Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The reality is we all have logs in our eyes, right? Like every single one of us have sins. Every one of us in this room have faults. And we actually need other people to help us with those faults, to help us see them clearly, to help us deal with them. But we can't see clearly to help anybody else with their sin unless we're dealing with our own. We're like a man with a plank hanging out of his eyes, smacking everybody else around, trying to remove a speck. Jesus says, no, 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 deal with your own sin. Be putting your own sin to death. And then you'll be able to deal with other people gently, graciously. If we're not dealing with our sin, we're just going to be cold and harsh when we deal with one another. We need to deal with our own sin. In in closing, um, this is the ethic that Jesus 
puts in front of us. This is the bar for His kingdom. The expectation is that we love those who have wronged us. We love those who can do nothing for us. And that we actually deal gently and graciously with other people. And maybe you're like me and you you hear the teachings of Jesus... And what becomes really painfully apparent is that there is a, an enormous gap between the expectation that Jesus has, the standard that He sets forth, and where I am currently. I have a really tough time loving my enemies. I have a tough time not judging other people. And my guess is, so do you. So how do we get there? How do we begin to have hearts that are quick to love, quick to forgive, slow to judge? See, our tendency by nature is to love those who are the most like us, the ones that can offer us tangible benefit. And see, both of these, both of these sins, right, our judging other people and our lack of love for other people, they both arise out of pride and insecurity. Right? That, that's what drives this sort of lack of love and this judgmental disposition towards other people's pride and insecurity. And pride and insecurity go hand in hand. See, a lot of times we think that pride is just thinking too highly of ourselves. And that's part of it, but what pride actually is, is just not seeing ourselves rightly, not seeing ourselves through the lens of the gospel. And so pride can cause us to have too high a view of ourselves, or it can cause us to have too low a view of ourselves and make us insecure. And what the gospel does, it steps in and actually addresses that deficit. It steps in, addresses that gaping hole inside of us that says, I need to justify myself. I need to protect myself. The gospel steps in and it solves that. How? Because the gospel holds out two truths in perfect unison. It says, There has never been anyone so worthy of judgment, no enemy so worthy of condemnation, as us. That's what our sin gets us. We're enemies of God, equally deserving His condemnation and His wrath. And then the Gospel also holds out a truth that's on the other side of that coin. It also says that in His mercy, through the cross of Jesus, He canceled our record of debt. He transferred us into this kingdom, the kingdom of His Son. And He's given us new hearts and showered us with His covenantal, unchanging, agape love. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. See, the Gospel, in doing that, it saves us from having too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of ourselves. And it cuts our pride at its root. It stifles our insecurities. When we rest in the Gospel, when we know the love of God, we go from operating out of a deficit to operating out of a surplus. When we see ourselves through the lens of the Gospel, there's no way that we can feel some deserve our love and others don't. We can no longer see ourselves as being above anyone else. We can no longer have any room to harshly criticize anyone. When this Gospel truly transforms us as individuals, it will transform us as a church body. And that kind of love, when we possess it, it will make us a compelling community that will draw people in. That's the goal. We want to be a compelling community that stands different than the rest of the world, that shows a love that's completely foreign to what the world has seen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for loving us, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because of Your mercy. Lord, because You overflow with kindness and compassion to those who don't deserve it. Father, we recognize the tendency we have to withhold love from people. Father, we recognize the tendency we have to be critical and harsh with other people. And Father, we ask that by Your Spirit, You would set Your love in our hearts. Make it a reality to us. Cure the deficit in our hearts that says that we need to earn love and earn approval. That we need to prove ourselves and protect ourselves. Father, make us people who love others radically, generously, and compassionately. Father, we do all this by Your Spirit. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.